the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. We're back live today. It's the Tuesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Whatever is going through your brain or on your heart, we'll do the best that we can to answer those questions. Uh, The way to call us is to dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can send an email question by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app, to send the question in that way as well. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, thanks for your patience yesterday. We, as you know, I told you uh, last week, uh, Paul and I had to go to a dear friend's funeral, uh, Pastor Tim Roosevelt from Calvary Chapel in Beaumont, Texas. It's a long drive for a quick turnaround trip, but we're really, really glad we're gonna that we were able to be there. Tim was 52 years old. He loved Jesus with all of his heart, um, and was a dear, dear friend. And we're going to miss him. One thing I do want to comment on that uh, I think ought to be a goal for all of us as Christians. Over and over and over, the people that spoke at the ceremony said that he was the nicest person that they've ever known. He was just nice. He loved Jesus. We knew that. He was an inspired evangelist. He he wanted people saved. Everybody he met, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? All of that was true. But that he was nice. Christian men especially, we need to be able to be described as nice. That's a reflection of Jesus. Jesus' kids weren't afraid to come to him. Uh, the, The woman with the issue of blood could press in. The lepers could come to him when they were hated by everybody else. Jesus was approachable. He was nice. And one of the enduring things that was said by both of his daughters, his 18-year-old daughter and a 20-year-old daughter, and both of them said, my dad was always that nice. That's why his girls could talk to him. They weren't afraid if they messed up because they knew their dad loved Jesus and because he loved Jesus, their dad was nice. So maybe we can all, in Pastor Tim Roosevelt's honor, we can really surrender to the Spirit of God And make this commitment. Help me to be nice to people. Tim never was too busy to stop and talk to somebody. And when he stopped and talked, he really listened. 
He was never too busy to knock on his daughter's door and say, want to take a drive? We need to be men who are like that. Now, men and women both, being nice is really just a, sort of an unwritten fruit of the Spirit. But when you're nice, you know what it says to people? It says that they matter to God. And all too often, those of us who have a hard time being nice, it just doesn't come natural or easy. It's because we're too consumed with ourselves. And Pastor Tim was really an other's person. And I think that's what we all ought to strive to be. So I appreciate very, very much your prayers for us. Um, we actually had uh, Tim on our show a year ago. It was actually March 31st of 2017. Um, he was on the program uh, when we did it from the Pastors Conference in Plano, Texas. And you got an opportunity to hear him, and he just was a, a nice guy. You know, something else that I want everybody else to consider? And I say this all the time. This is just one of the things that I never stop marveling over and, and considering personally. A year ago, March 31st, when he was on the program, none of us knew that he had just a little over a year left to live. Nobody knew that. And this is something that we really need to consider because sometimes it's too late to be nice. It's too late to tell somebody that you're sorry for what you've done. Sometimes it's too late to reconcile with people. We count on time. And there's just no way that we can count on time. The suddenness of life as a pastor for these last 23 years, the suddenness of life is something that never, ever stops amazing me. A year ago, this month, I was having heart surgery. Prior to that, I had no idea that there was even anything wrong. And you get to that place where you're close to not making it. And it really makes you consider all over again what it means to make use of our time. Let's start today with a bang. We'd love your phone calls. 340-9585 for your phone calls. Here is our first question today, and this one comes from our mobile app from Jared. Um, he says, as in Proverbs 18.18, 18, why don't Christians cast lots today to solve problems and answer questions? Well, Jared, the answer is real clear. We don't have to because we have something that they didn't have when lots were cast in the Old Testament, and that's the Holy Spirit living in us. So instead of casting a lot, all we have to do is ask Jesus what he wants us to do. You know, it's interesting, the last time the lot was cast, as it relates to Christians, although they weren't yet fulfilled Christians in the sense that they they had the Holy Spirit given to them, but it was in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, when Peter, sitting among, uh, among the other disciples, said, you know, it's written that, that uh, the place of the one has been deserted, and now we must fill it again. And so he says, they, the Bible says they cast lots to determine whether uh, it would be Matthias or the other person who, was, who had met the qualifications. And the lot fell, as we know, to Matthias. But you see, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell. And so from this point forward, there was never any need to cast a lot. You know, sometimes, Jared, I'm going to make an application here. Sometimes, we who are Christians, we let circumstances be our lot. God closed this door, opened this door, and then when God doesn't close the door, we think he's opened it and then it doesn't work out. We don't have to be that imprecise. We don't have to take that kind of a chance. All we have to do is prayerfully seek the Lord for direction and he'll give us direction. Well, what if he doesn't say anything right away? Well, then we don't do anything until he tells us what to do. I was having a conversation just today about uh, a husband's responsibility as the leader, the spiritual head of the household. As you know, that doesn't make him boss. It makes him accountable to seek the Lord through prayer and through the word. And what it means for those of us who are men especially, but it's true practically for every Christian, 
we should stay where we are producing fruit until we know where God wants us next to go. And then when he gives us direction, then we go. And we know we're in his perfect, pleasing will. So in this particular case, the lot was simply um, believed by God or believed by Jews of the day to um, determine the will of God. God spoke that way, and no doubt he did. He honored it repeatedly. But now, Jared, we have the Holy Spirit, and it is a much better, much more intimate way of finding out the will of God, much more accurate, I might as well might add. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate the question. Here is a question from our email inbox from Drew. Drew, if you're listening, we miss you. We know you're far away, but we miss you. Pastor Ron, when Jesus explains to his disciples the signs of things to be fulfilled, is he foretelling of two future events, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. and the end of the age when Jesus returns? Um, Drew, yeah, but but sort of a, to a different degree. Um, you remember, this is in Mark chapter 13. Jesus was leaving the temple. He'd finally convinced his disciples that he was going to die. This is the Olivet Discourse, by the way. Mark chapter 13, Matthew 24 and 25, and Luke chapter 21. They all have bring different elements. Um, well, Mark and Luke both indicate that in, in what was a sad time, it was almost as though the disciples were trying to change the subject. You know, they were heartbroken. It was a very somber time. Sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. Well, that was the case with the disciples. And so uh, the disciples' attention was focused on the, the temple, the magnificent stones and the gifts that were being given, dedicated to God. Jesus had just berated the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy. And he looked out over Jerusalem and wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you knew, if you only knew that I'd come to gather you as a mother hen comes to gather her chicks. His heart was broken because as he prepared to die, the people for whom he came had rejected him completely. The temple was the center of Jewish life, not just religious life, but cultural, social life. And the disciples couldn't imagine life as a Jew without the temple. And so Jesus is going to use this opportunity not to feel better or make them feel better. He says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, this is the temple that Herod rebuilt that took more than 40 years to finish. It wouldn't be finished completely until 63 A.D. That means there are only seven years for them to enjoy it until Jesus' prophecy was completely fulfilled. That was when the Roman general Titus came and completely destroyed it. The siege from Titus was so gruesome that bodies were stacked like firewood in the streets. Food became so scarce that mothers ate their children. That's why God was warning them. Jesus was warning them that these things were going to happen. When the walls of the city were finally breached, the anger of the Roman soldiers was so intense that they set fires and burned the temple so completely that you couldn't even tell that the temple was there. More than half a million Jews lost their lives. The only ones who were saved were those who remembered Jesus' words right here. When they saw the armies gather, they fled to safety in the rock city in Jordan called Petra one of the ten cities of the Decapolis. The fire was so intense that the gold that had been stockpiled in the temple was melted and ran between the stones and the crevices. And the Roman soldiers, in their greed to salvage the gold, they literally pried the stones apart piece by piece. So Jesus' prophecy that not one stone would be left on another was completely fulfilled. The only portion of the temple that remains even to this day is the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. We see that 
on the news feeds that we have from Israel. By the way, it's a good time to pray for the people in Jerusalem. We had a very volatile situation with the US, or with the uh, United States Embassy being placed in Jerusalem and, of course, in Gaza. The Palestinian opponents of Israel are storming the gate and many are dying and it's going to continue. But all of that to say, this was the primary prophecy. But then, Drew, they want to know what was going to happen next. Mark's Gospel tells us that Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and said, when are these kind of things happen? So this is where the, the conversation turns to the future. There are three questions. The first one is, when will the temple be torn down? The second question that we learn from Matthew's Gospel is, what will be the signs of your coming? And the third question is, what are the signs that all of this will be complete? So from this point forward in the Gospel of Mark, they're forward. So the prophecy is, as you correctly identified, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., but the rest of it is about the things that are coming to pass in the future. So I hope that answers your question, but reading all of it discourse carefully, you have to kind of pull it apart and listen to the answers that are being given to the questions so that we understand the complete scope of Jesus' prophecy there. Drew, great question. Thank you very much. I like thinking about those things, especially now. Here's a question from our mobile app from John. John says, after listening to your sermon on Sunday, thanks for listening, John. My question is, how old was Jesus when he died on the cross? 33 or 37? I ask because most people think Jesus was born in the year zero. You said that he may have been born in 4 BC. Thank you. John, we're, we're certain that he was born in 4 BC. Um, the whole calendar application uh, BC, I know we mean before Christ, but that's not accurate in the sense completely. Jesus was born in 4 BC. The way we know that is because we get the information again from Mark's gospel that Herod was ruling and reigning at the time when Jesus was born. And we know uh, factually that Herod's um, reign ended in 4 BC. So we can place definitively the time of Jesus' birth in 4 B.C. Now, that doesn't mean that he died 33 years later uh, or, or, uh, or that we could take zero and, and add 33 and then his ministry ended. Um, it, it means that Jesus was probably uh, about 30 years old, I think most scholars agree, when, um, when the wedding in Cana took place and he entered ministry with the first miracle with the wedding in Cana um, we, we believe that he was um, 33 plus a little bit when he was crucified but John there's no way of knowing for sure but what is certain here is that he was born in 4 BC uh, we can piece that together factually um, by simply looking at the gospel accounts So, John, I hope that answers your question, and thank you for listening to the message that we had coming to you the other day. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions, or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Pedro wants to know, uh, Pastor Ron, how would you describe the gift of faith? Don't we all have it to get saved? Um, Pedro, with regard to saving faith, it is a gift from God. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 um, through verse 10 says that we are saved by f- grace through faith. And that, and referencing the faith, is a gift of God. So as the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and begins to convict us of sin and of righteousness and judgment, Jesus said that was his mission when he came. Um, I think the correct theological term is prevenient faith. And what that means is that he gives us the faith not only to accept our sin, but to discover the answer for our sin. And, of course, that's Jesus. So that's a free gift from God. Um, Nobody gets saved without the work of the Holy Spirit being done. 
So that's a gift that's available to every human being. The gift of faith that you ask about at the beginning of your question, Peter, was something completely different. It is a gift that God gives us to do what he asks us to do while we're here on earth. For example, and I'll just use my story, uh, Pedro. Um, 23 years ago, God sent me and Paula to come to a place here in San Antonio we'd never been to. We, we'd never been to Texas. We never wanted to come to Texas. It was never on our radar. Um, but the Lord began speaking to my heart, asking me to pray for the people of San Antonio, Texas. And, you know, we didn't know. I, I knew nothing about being a pastor at that point. I didn't really know anything at all about uh, how a church runs or what you do to start a church. But I remember really, really clearly the Lord saying that that's where he'll be waiting for me. So I began praying for the people in San Antonio, Texas. And um, on Easter Sunday in 1995, we got in our truck and we started driving across. Now, we had no money. Um, the last couple of weeks we were there, I'd been asked to speak some places, and they paid us a little bit of money. But, you know, for a life-changing trip like this, there was just no conceivable way it made any sense. And I had people constantly asking me, well, what are you going to do when you get there? How are you going to start to... I had no answers. But all I knew for sure, Pedro, was that he told me he'd be here, and I'd wait. You know, there was a real interesting moment um, when Paul and I, we really had to sit down and talk about this. And this is the way husbands and wives should dialogue with each other when you're taking these steps of faith. Um, I sat down and I, I told her, I said, Paul, we don't have any money. What do we um, I sat down and I, I told her, I said, Paul, we don't have any money. What are we going to do if the day leave comes and all we have is one tank full of gas? And you know what Paula said to me, Pedro? She said, well, wherever we run out, I'm sure Jesus will meet us there. That's the gift of faith. Pedro, I'm a nut. We, we've been taking steps of faith here for all of our 23 years, and it's really, really hard. But the gift of faith given by God enables us to trust him. And that's really all it is enables us to trust him and we got to keep taking those steps of faith always don't ever be complacent in your walk with the lord we don't have to know how it's going to work out we don't have to know any of the details all we need to know is that god said to go one other key and then we'll go to some phone calls uh the key is that uh, i think personally i learned in my walk with the lord is that you have to view faith as though we don't have a choice in the matter. I think too many of us, when God is asking us to do something, we kind of weigh whether or not we're going to do it, how we're going to do it. And truthfully, I realize now I know I'm going to do it because I don't have a choice. He's in charge, I'm not. And I think that's the gift of faith. So, Pedro, I hope that helps a little bit. Let's go to Elizabeth calling from San Antonio. Elizabeth, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you doing? It's been a long time since I called you. I'm doing well. Thank you, Elizabeth. I have a question. I met a teacher at my son's school, and she's a born-again Christian. It's been a blessing, encouraging, and speaking to her early in the morning. Um, But she she has a son, and he has the passion of um, playing the guitar, and his name is Obi. And his Mm -hmm. name is actually Obet, O-B-E-D. But she Mm -hmm. has shared a couple things. Um, he's been struggling with, um, like, scratching his arm, and I think there was one situation where he was screaming and, like, telling someone something to stop. What, what is, I wasn't sure, I didn't want to, I guess, assume, like, could he be possessed? Could he Mm -hmm. be struggling with a... Okay, before you before you hang up, Elizabeth, can you tell me how old he uh, is? I think he is a seventh grader, seventh or eighth grader. Okay. Seventh or eighth grader. Okay. Thank you very, very much. But they go to church. He, he loves to be in the worship team. He, he's involved with the things of the Lord. And I know, I mean, I just I just know in my heart that God has great plans for him, even though I don't know him. But yeah. I've just been praying for him and for her. But I'll listen to your answer. 
thank you. Thank you for praying for him and keep praying for him. Uh, it's, it's very possible that he is uh, being harassed by demons, you know, um, uh, for, for a seventh grader to, to be excited about the Lord, to be gifted. Of course, there's going to be spiritual warfare. It is not possible, Elizabeth, that he's demon-possessed. If he is a believer, as you uh, indicate that he is, um, there's no possibility that a Christian can be demon-possessed. We need to know that with every fiber of our being because there's so much bad teaching out there about casting out demons out of Christians. Um, God won't share his space. God would not uh, allow us to be possessed by demon you when Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. They didn't come back uh, because she was with Jesus. The same thing is true uh, for us. But, but uh, you know, young people, uh, there's so much tension, so much conflict in this world. Um, um, a child that stands out as a light for Jesus uh, has got to be expecting spiritual warfare. So uh, there's no possibility he could be possessed by a demon. Uh, More likely, he needs to be in his word, get close to Jesus, and let Jesus fight that battle for him. I'll have a few more words on the other side of the break. You're listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'd love your live calls at 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the show 340-9585 for your live calls and questions and we'd love to have you call because i tell you all the time you're more interesting than i am elizabeth just a couple of more thoughts um, when kids are going through puberty and, and things are changing in their life and there are uh, strange things happening to them physically or in terms of anxiety or uh, emotions, um, you know, it's a good thing to get them checked out by a doctor always. Um, yes, it could be uh, spiritual oppression, uh, but but never spiritual possession. But uh, it's it's always good to look for the most obvious things first. Um, bodies change, minds are changing at this age when boys are this age. So advise your friend to get her son uh, to a doctor just to make sure everything's okay, um, and and then just teach him how to fight spiritually speaking. Ephesians chapter 6, but the shorthand version of that is just be with Jesus. Thank you very, very much. And Elizabeth, if you don't mind keeping me posted, uh, I, I treasure these young people who are going to have to deal with so much when God's hand is on them. Um, and I'd like to know how he's doing. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. here is a question from Lance. Uh, since the Bible permits multiple marriages, why does that not happen now? Lance, the Bible doesn't permit them. The Bible only reports on them. You know, it's the same thing as slavery. The Bible doesn't permit slavery or encourage slavery. The Bible simply reports that slavery was a fact of life in the ancient world. Now, I know your question's not about slavery, but every time I mention it, I feel obligated to remind our listeners here, that slavery in the early church in the first century uh, or in the early Roman Empire uh, was not a black and white issue. It was an economic issue. Uh, Slaves outnumbered freemen four to one. So um, when when the Bible is reporting on these things, that's all it's doing. Now, in the matter of multiple marriages, the Bible is reporting the shame of the men who are the perpetrators of multiple marriages. There's nothing ever good that happens from having more than one wife. It was the way of the world. It was the way the ancient world used to function. Having multiple wives meant you could have many, many children and families would grow very quickly and you'd have workers, you'd have soldiers, and and, and that's the way that the world worked. Clans were important. But 
the Bible is very clear, not only that God doesn't want men to multiply wives, but it's also very clear about the consequences of doing so. And in every case where there is a man with more than one wife, you will see that there are horrible consequences that follow. So understand the difference between the Bible reporting on something and permitting or even blessing something. We know it was always God's intention from the very beginning, Adam and Eve. It was always God's intention that one man and one woman would be together forever. So, Lance, I hope that helps. Here is a question from Seth. He says, I'm trying to figure out God's will. Welcome to the club, Seth. Everybody is. He says, I think I'm doing what God wants me to do, but it's hard. Isn't it true that God would provide financially for what we're called to do? Seth, you know, I think sometimes we we have this sort of utopian view of being in the will of God. Let me give you an example using Israel. Uh, Israel went to, uh, through the Exodus wilderness, God told them what he was going to do. They went, they spied out the land, and they saw giants, and they saw armies, and they thought, well, no, we can't go. We're going to get killed. Only two people, Joshua and Caleb by the faith, to say, let's go for it. God parted the Red Sea. You think he's going to have trouble with, with giants? Well, the rest of the people convinced the others not to go. And that's why they were 40 years in the Exodus wilderness. When they were in the wilderness, they instantly came to places where there was no water. They're trying to kill us. It's better in Egypt, places where there was no food. And it's because they thought that, well, if God was with them, then they'd have everything they wanted and everything they needed. But that's never been the case. That has never been the case. And, you know, looking for stuff they didn't have crippled them from being able to see what they did have, the blessings of God. They didn't notice that their shoes, their clothing never wore out. They didn't notice that nobody ever got sick with the diseases that other people in pagan countries, most notably Egypt, were stricken by. They're always looking at what they didn't have instead of what they did have. Well, we do that today. It's just different. We look at Instead of the blessings that God has given us, the Spirit of God living in us, the the promises of God that have been made to us, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We're, we're, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. We look at what we don't have, the single person who wants to be married, instead of looking at all the blessings in their life, that man or woman looks at what they don't have, the, 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 the woman who wants to have a baby and can't have a child yet, at least not to this point instead of thanking God for what he has blessed them with. They're focused on what they want but don't have. Money's the same way. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Seth says that it's required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. Every man must required. Those words are important. They mean something. So when you step out into God's will, you're going to be tested. And often those tests are financial. I could give you a 23-year history here at Calvary Chapel. But let me tell you that we've never had everything that we felt like we needed. We're going through a time right now, it's the most difficult time that we've had in I don't know how many years. Financially, it's just been overwhelming, and yet we have to remember that at every step of the way, God has met us. I tease with the church. I say, you know, God's never late, but he's never early either. And money has come at just the right time. We're getting ready to graduate um, a brand-new senior class, Uh, not this week, but the following week. And... You'd think after 18 years of our free school, we'd have passed all the tests, but there's always a new person. There's always a new test. So don't measure what it means to be in God's will by material provision. What God wants you to do is take that step of faith, walk in his will in the absence of provision, and trust him for it. Just keep doing the work, whatever it is he's called you to do. 
You know, Seth, I mentioned just this past Sunday in the message that we've always had sort of a distorted view of missions. You know, in 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 Paul's day, it wasn't it was not Sunday. It was Friday. Friday's message. Friday night, we're in the Book of Acts. Paul's second missionary journey started. They didn't have anything that they needed. They just went. In our church culture, somebody thinks they're called to the mission field, they start collecting money, raising funds. And so God says, no, and I call you, just go. So Seth, whatever it is God's called you to do, you do it. But go out and do it because you trust God. He's the one who's called and he's the one who will provide. And when I say he will provide, my own experience, Seth, not just the Bible and the stories, but my own experience, I want you to know that that, that experience says very clearly that that doesn't mean you're going to have what you think you need. You're only going to have what God knows you need. And what he does, I'll never understand it, but he puts us in a position where we can trust nobody but him. Sometimes, Seth, what we end up doing is we take matters into our own hands. We start asking other people for money. That means we fail the test. So trust him. It's a scary place to be out on that ledge with Jesus, but it's the only place to be. It's a wonderful and exciting place. It's just that at this moment in our history here at Calvary Chapel, I'm a little more excited than I want to be at my old age. So, Seth, I hope that makes some sense. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to Lupe on line one from San Antonio. Lupe, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes. Um, a friend of mine um, told me that she's going to a Bible study and that they are studying uh, Mary. I'm not I haven't read the, I was raised Catholic, but I never read the Catholic Bible. Um, what, what would, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like, what, how are they studying Mary and the Bible? How different yeah, Lupe, is it a Catholic group? Lupe, is it a Catholic group? Yeah, she, she, uh, she's Catholic, yes. Yeah, yeah. see, that's that's the problem, and that's where the, the difficulty comes in. Uh, they're studying materials that aren't found in the Bible. Uh, they're studying Catholic... Okay. They're, okay, they're studying... I'm listening to you on the phone because I'm okay. driving. Okay, okay. Lupe, thank okay. you very, very much. Uh, Lupe, I know you couldn't hear me, obviously, but what I was saying was that's the problem. They're studying Catholic dogma. They're not studying the Bible. So it's not a Bible study. They're studying what Catholic tradition says about Mary. Uh, Lupe, you might, if she will listen, I don't know if she'll listen, but uh, if she will listen, um, invite her to listen to the last two Sunday messages that I did um, in in the Gospel of Luke um, this week and the week before. Um, was was about Mary. It was Mary's um, Gabriel appearing to her, giving her the the, the news that she was going to be uh, with a child. The the the, the news of of um, her response when she goes to visit Elizabeth. Um, it's it's really important that we do a solid biblical study on Mary. Uh, we should honor her and love her and be so grateful to God for her. But to elevate her to a position equal to or even nearly equal to God, to elevate her to a position even above other human beings is is heretical. And, and so what they're doing is they're studying Catholic tradition, they're studying uh, the Catholic catechism, um, um, the, the Catholic teaching on Mary is 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 false it's it's um, heretical uh, and it causes a lot of damage because it's not true so that's what she's doing she's not studying the Bible if you study the Bible you end up grateful for Mary you end up honoring Mary but you never elevate her to a position above that which was intended by God so it's important if it's a good friend tell her to read the Bible, just the Bible, not not through a Catholic lens or through Catholic doc, Catholic doctrine, but just read the Bible, and it'll tell you everything about Mary 
that God wanted us to know. You know, Lupe, in Luke chapter 2, we know the Catholic Church teaches that Mary was without sin, but from her own words, in her Magnificat, she calls God, this baby in her womb, her Savior. This past Sunday was Christmas Sunday here at Calvary Chapel because we were studying Luke chapter 2. And one of the songs that our worship group sang was, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that this child that you will deliver will soon deliver you? If Mary was without sin, she wouldn't need to be delivered. If she was without sin, she wouldn't have called him her Savior. So the biblical perspective, Lupe, is really, really important. Encourage you to read the Bible and not the Catholic Catechism. 340-9585. Here is an interesting question from Zachary. He says, Pastor Ron, do you believe that we each have a soulmate, just one person that God intends for us to marry? Zachary, I do not. Now, here's what I do believe. I believe Paul is my soulmate. Is that a contradiction? No, it's just that God knew that we were going to get married. Think about this. God had his hand on Paula. He knew when she was not saved that she would become his. God had his hand on me. He knew that I would get saved many, many years before I ever thought about getting saved. And yet he put us together. So yes, she's my soulmate, but we all have a soulmate. As Christians, it's the person that we're with. I think we make it too mystical. We, may, we, we complicate the matter of marriage. God doesn't have to guess. God isn't sitting in heaven with his fingers crossed hoping, and I'm going to go back a whole bunch of years. Well, I sure hope Ron and Paula get together, and I hope they hit it off. That's not the way God works. God knows exactly what's going to happen, and he works things together in our lives to accomplish that will. Now, we can resist his will, and we can mess his plan up. But believe me, there's not one person, and only one person, and if you miss out, you're just out of luck. God knows the person that you're going to marry or the person you're married to. And he wants you to treat that person like the most beautiful, most precious, most loved woman in the world. Or if it's a man, he wants you to treat that person with respect and with love. He wants you to give yourself to him once you're married. The truth is, we can all fall in love with a whole bunch of people. There's a lot of nice people, a lot of attractive people, a lot of people that we hit it off with instantly. But the one woman that you have, or the one man that you have, that's the one that God says is your soulmate. Cherish that. You say that takes faith? Of course it takes faith. You've got to trust God for those things. God loves you way too much, Zachary, to let you miss out on his perfect will. So just trust him for it. You know, I have a, and this is off Zachary's question uh, for, a, for a moment, but, um, you know, young people now are so used to doing everything online that they even date online. Um, we've got people in our church who met online, and we've got people that, that, that date sort of electronically before they ever go out on a real date. Um, so I, I know I'm, I'm speaking from an old perspective here, but it still distresses me that born-again Christians, people that I know who love Jesus, do all the looking for a husband or for a wife themselves online. I always ask, where's the faith in that? How do you know that this is the one that God wants you to marry? How do you know that God's working through this thing? How about getting to that point where we understand that if we're in the will of God, we're doing his work, we can't miss that person that he knows we're going to marry. Zachary, I think a lot of times, back to your question, I think a lot of times we get so busy trying to find out who that person is that we stop asking God to provide that person. 
And I can tell you there's nothing quite like seeing for the very first time somebody that you just know you're meant to be with. That's what happened to me and Paul. And we didn't even know Jesus. 48 years ago, I knocked on her door. And she opened it. And we, not just me, I mean, anybody would fall for Paula, but nobody would fall for me. But we were both in love. And for going a long time without Jesus, we really had to fight through a whole bunch to stay together. Paula got saved. 13 years later, I got saved. And that was when we both knew that this was our soulmate. This was the one that God set aside from the very beginning. So don't worry that you might have missed her. Don't worry that you might miss her. Just trust the Lord. Zachary, thank you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Alex. He wants to know, what is the most effective way to read the different books in the Bible? Um, Alex, the most effective way is start to finish. Um, read it systematically. Um, if you're reading the book of Ephesians, uh, read uh, chapter 1. Uh, read it four or five times. That sounds like a lot, but it won't take you 15 minutes. Read it four or five times. I personally like reading it out loud. And now that my vision is, is has failed or is failing, uh, Paula reads it to me out loud. Um, that way we're using both our senses. If we're the one reading out loud, we're using our sense of sight, but also our sense of hearing. Uh, repetition, I have found, is rich beyond my ability to communicate. You read it once, you think, okay, I got through it. But, but when you read it again and then again and again, when you read it like that, it's an amazing thing how God writes it on your heart and he writes it on your brain. And the more you read it, the more he'll speak to you. So the, the most effective way is to read it systematically, to read it repetitively. And then the next day when you start, pick up where you left off, but before you start with the new section, read the section before it again. Keeping the context, but just read it. And it's very important that we get familiar with it. Now, here's the place I'm going to sound like an old fuddy guy. But Alex, get a real Bible, a book with pages in it, and turn the pages. Later, you can go to your computer or your cell phone. And you can read it electronically. There's just something that can't be found electronically that that you find when you're turning the pages of your Bible. So read it systematically. Read through a book. When you get to the end of the book and you've done as I've suggested, then just start all over with another book. Then when you want to start studying it, You'll have a foundation, and then you can use the study tools. But 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 reading is the first step, and it's the most important step. Never just open the Bible and read. You know, every Christian is tempted to say, "Oh God, I need you to speak to me." And we just open it, and we point, and oh, that's the verse that, that I know God's going to talk to me. You, you do that, and you find, well, I chose twelve of you, didn't I? But one of you is a devil. That's we don't want to do that. We want to read systematically. We want to read in context. So try that, Alex, and let me know how it works. Three four zero ninety five. Are we three minutes now? Oh, I didn't think the program. Boy, we're going, time's going fast. Uh, here's a question from Wanda. We're inside three minutes, so we don't have time for any more calls. Uh, Wanda wants to know. Uh, she says, "I've heard you say that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are are not Christians. I say they believe in Jesus, so they are." Why don't you agree? Well, Wanda, the really, really vital question here is, who's Jesus? I've used him as an example many times just for fun on this program, but uh, my Friday night Spanish translator is is a, a wonderful man who loves God with all of his heart. His name is Jesus. 
but he can't save anybody. Well, you see, the Mormon Jesus and the Jehovah's Witness Jesus are not the same Jesus that the Bible declares. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, sort of the the good brother, and Lucifer, of course, the bad brother. Both believe that Jesus was a created being as opposed to the creator. So they can use the name Jesus, but they've got the wrong Jesus. They've got Jesus, my translator. And Jesus would actually be of more value because Jesus would tell them about the real Jesus. So it's really important that we get this, Wanda, that just because somebody says something with their mouth, it's what they mean by what they say. You know, when you talk to a Mormon about Jesus dying for your sins, when you talk to a Mormon about um, um, heaven and salvation and how we're saved, I, I mean, the language is almost identical to that of Orthodox Christian doctrine. But it's completely different because it's a different Jesus. So it's not what they say, it's what they mean. Next time a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon tells you that they're, they're, uh, they believe in Jesus, ask them, well, do you believe Jesus is God? They will say no. Do you believe Jesus was the creator of all things? They will say no. And that's why they're in a cult. That's why they're not able to be saved. So Wanda, I hope that helps. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Find somebody today and just tell them how much Jesus loves them. God bless you. I'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.